0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2013.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to talk about Ogden today, specifically 25th Street. Book 25th Street Confidential by Val Hawley. The subtitle is Drama, Decadence, and Dissipation Along Ogden's Rowdiest Road. And this is emblematic, Val Hawley says, of larger themes in Utah and U.S. history. Generations of Ogdenites have grown up absorbing 25th Street's legends of corruption, menace, and depravity. The rest of Utah has tended to judge Ogden by that street's gaudy reputation. In his new book, 25th Street Confidential, Val Holley traces Ogden's transformation from quiet Hamlet to chaotic railroad junction as waves of non-Mormon fortune seekers swelled the city's population. The city's outsized role in Ogden Annals illuminates larger themes in Utah and U.S. history, most specifically, 25th Street was a crucible of Mormon-Gentile conflict. Valhauley tells us the street was targeted in statewide progressive era reform efforts, and during Prohibition it would come to epitomize the futility of liquor abatement programs. And he spotlights larger-than-life figures like Mayor Harmon Ward-Perry. Val, London, the most successful madam in Utah history, and Rosetta ducini Davy, fascinating figure. Val Holley is a native of Weber County, attended Weber State College, received a degree in journalism for BYU, a doctorate, uh, a law degree from University of Utah, and a master in library science from Catholic University of America. And he's been a law librarian for several decades and independent historian in Washington, D.C. He's the author as well of James Dean, The Biography, and Mike Connolly and the Manly Art of Hollywood Gossip. Val Howley, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. I'm very glad to be here.
1: So, growing up in Weber County, inevitably you would have heard stories of 25th Street. What what sorts of stories did you hear?
2: Oh, dear. It was so long disparaged as a disgrace and a a gambling hell. Uh, In 1911, the Reverend of Ogden's First Methodist Church called it one of the most disgraceful gateways to a city on the continent. Even up in Logan, where you folks' radio program is, uh, Ogden's reputation from 25th Street was just terrible. We had a former city councilwoman in Ogden named Doreen Jeske. She tells us that in sixth grade, in Logan, her teacher said, if you went down to 25th Street, you took your life in your hands if you dared to visit.
1: Hmm. You quote uh, uh, Tom Owens, this is in the preface, I think, Overseas in the Army, uh, people had learned these from Ogden, and they start telling him 25th Street stories.
2: Oh, yes. A lot of those fellows had been on 25th Street in World War Two, whether just passing through on troop trains or whether having been stationed at one of the military installations nearby, such as Hillfield or uh, Ogden Ordnance in Sunset, or the uh, Ogden Quartermaster Depot, which is now the... Which became the Utah General Depot. Lots of lots of soldiers came through and experienced 25th Street's wild, chaotic craziness.
1: Now, as as something becomes legendary, there's it's hard to pick out the fact from the fiction. You treat this in your preface. In fact, you uh, quote Richard Seltzer. You say, chronicler of the old Hell's Half Acre district in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, He says, "What is known today is about two-thirds myth." problem with getting to the historical roots is that the historical viewpoint languishes while the mythology is self-perpetuating. That's certainly true, isn't it?
2: It is. In Ogden, there are so many stories about Ogden, uh, the best about which I can say is that there isn't, there's never been any evidence produced to support them. For example, that Al Capone was hiding out from the law in Chicago in Ogden during the Depression.
1: Uh, there's another one that uh, you kind of wish it was true, um, a uh, Kate Flint. Oh,
2: Kate Flint, yes, a very famous madam in early Utah uh, railroad era history. In in Utah, she uh, operated her, her bordellos in Corinne and Salt Lake, but there was never any evidence that she operated in Ogden. So, for her to have purchased. The rumor is that she purchased Brigham Young's carriage at auction, and then, as sort of a thumb in the eye to the Mormon population of Utah, drove it through the streets of Ogden. There's no evidence that she purchased the uh, the carriage. It was a, a joke in the Salt Lake Tribune.
1: <laughs> and uh, there's a Fanny Dawson who's uh, supposed to have been a uh, serial killer.
2: Oh, yes. I, I'm not quite sure how that uh, story got started, because the record... <clears throat> shows that Fanny Dawson was never tried for a murder. The, the most serious thing she ever was charged with was operating a boarding house without a license. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: your first chapter is titled Ogden Envy. I want to ask you why that. Here, here's, your, uh, here's a quote and epigraph before you start the chapter. This is a quote from the Salt Lake Tribune. Ogden has one advantage uh, comparing Ogden to Salt Lake City. Its people are wickeder than ours, and the wicked people as a rule are different from those who get all their punishment in this world.
2: The source of the great envy that Salt Lake had for Ogden in the 19th century was the railroad. Brigham Young desperately wanted the Union Pacific Railroad to be routed through Salt Lake City. But because the topography to do that was far more prohibitive, uh, the Union Pacific routed the railroad through Ogden and around the north side of the Great Salt Lake. That was really the source of uh, all of the envy that Salt Lake had harbored for Ogden. All the financial benefit from the railroad came into Ogden, and not Salt Lake.
1: And uh, until the railroad came, you write that Ogden was just sort of a sleepy, typical Mormon outpost.
2: That's correct. It was just considered a, a sleepy town on the stage road into Idaho and Montana. But once the railroad got there... Construction began, and uh, travelers came through, and their expectations of hospitality needed to be catered to. So you had hotel men and other people who wanted to make money off uh, off this phenomenon of people who, when they traveled across the United States, had no choice but to transfer from the Union Pacific to the Central Pacific there at the railroad junction in Ogden. So you had pen- people stampeding to, to Ogden to make money by catering to these expectations, which were somewhat different from those of Mormon culture. So There was a culture clash from the beginning after the railroad arrived.
1: I guess it was inevitable. Was it inevitable that you'd have a street like 25th Street uh, spring up at a major railroad junction like this?
2: I think it is inevitable. I think uh, any town <clears throat> that is a transportation hub has this one fellow wrote maybe they call it larimer which of course is a famous denver tenderloin street Dar- larimer or mission but every western town that ever amounted to anything has a 25th street it usually staggers up the hill from the depot or the riverboat landing and it is always a legitimate street what hmm. uh business-wise
1: yeah, so the the uh, you'd have a lot of merchants there, and you'd just have a lot of people traveling through, and so it'd, it'd be probably, you'd have the same character, I suppose, in, in any western town.
2: Yes, uh, there was a fellow named Paul Kinsey, who was director of field studies for the American Social Hygiene Association, and therefore an expert in prostitution <clears throat> all around the country. He wrote, the railroads that run into Ogden, no, that's not the right quote. The location of some cities seems to make it easier for men to become customers of prostitutes. Up to the early 1940s, Ogden, Utah was a popular locale for prostitution because it was a rail junction. Men could visit a brothel between trains and indeed might plan their travel to permit a layover in Ogden some natives would enjoy driving their cars to Ogden's 25th Street on Saturday nights to watch the prostitutes and their clients. Mm.
1: But very colorful. we'll get into some of the larger than life figures and 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 the history. i suppose i don't know, we we don't we have no word. Brigham Young perhaps may have regretted the railroad coming to Salt Lake if that had happened.
2: uh now this is this is interesting. Salt Lake had as much if not more gambling, prostitution and illegal liquor.
1: Really? <laughs> it doesn't have that so reputation? I
2: don't know uh I I don't know that uh, that particularly bothered Brigham Young. I think he was able to deal with it. Uh,
1: so so it had every bit as much but the, of course the reputation of the, the two towns is very different.
2: Yes it is. I think the real reason that Ogden got far more mileage out of 25th Street which was its tenderloin district is that uh, you had a combination of <clears throat> politics politics and economics and cultural clashes going on there. In 1889 Ogden was the first city, first major city in Utah to have its government pass from the hands of the People's Party, which was the Mormon Party, to the Liberal Party, which was the non-Mormon party. And uh <clears throat> That was that didn't sit well with uh, with the People's Party at all. They uh, they started to cause a lot of disturbance and uh, a lot of <clears throat> make a lot of accusations that the Liberal Party was relaxing the enforcement of vice laws there along the street. So you had this, uh, you had you had the <clears throat> the Mormon Party, which was rather illegal. Beleaguered, fighting to maintain control of the town, but you also had the economic lifeblood of the town, which was the railroad, leveling the playing field, and that was a unique situation. It didn't exist in any other city.
1: So this that is a... probably
2: why 25th Street got the mileage out of its bad reputation that it did.
1: Were there promoters? Imagine if you're a merchant on 25th Street, you you don't mind its reputation as long as people keep coming.
2: Uh, that's another thing that has sort of been lost to history. The majority of the storefronts on 25th Street were legitimate businesses, whether butchers or milliners or grocers uh, and the like.
1: I wonder if you could uh, expand on this um, this Mormon-Gentile conflict. You say that this was a real touchpoint, this this election, the first city to to transfer over, and, and I imagine that conflict went on.
2: Yes, it did. Uh, the first... Gentile mayor there was Fred Kiesel, he took office pledging to conduct city business without partisanship or discrimination. But uh, in spite of that statement, one of the liberal city government's first actions was to pass an ordinance setting aside the city block, which for decades had been home to the Mormon tabernacle for use as a public square. The council believed that the church had never secured proper legal title to the the, uh, tabernacle square. And because of that, they started allowing circuses to come and pitch their tents on Tabernacle Square and uh, other <clears throat> public things, public events, which probably were not in keeping <clears throat> with the spirit of the uh, Tabernacle and its its activities there. That, of course, probably really stirred up the People's Party more than the uh, than, than losing the election had. And so at that point, uh, the Deseret News and other People's Party voices started accusing the liberal city government of not enforcing the vice laws.
1: We're talking with Val Hawley. He's written a new book called 25th Street Confidential, Drama, Decadence, and Dissipation Along Ogden's Rowdiest Road. Val Hawley says, we've been talking about this, that... uh, uh, the street's outsized role in Ogden, and also illuminates larger themes in Utah and U.S. history. Uh, one of those large themes is the crucible of it was a crucible of Mormon Gentile conflict. By the way, this uh, book has been published by University of Utah Press. It's out and available now. Uh, we are going to take a brief break. When we come back, I'll uh, have Val Holly tell me a few stories. Val um, uh, London, the most successful madam in Utah, Utah history uh, Rosetta ducini Davy, heiress to London's legacy, became a celebrity on the street in the courts and in the press, Mayor Harmon ward Peary, who filled the city treasury with fees and fines from these vicious establishments, and we'll ask Val Hawley These legends of corruption, menace, and depravity, um, which of these were true? And then, of course, we'll go to present day. Present day, Ogden has embraced 25th Street's reputation and history, as many Western towns have done, on these sorts of uh, streets, and has successfully promoted it to uh, tourists. We'll ask what that means. More with Val Holly following the break.
2: I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, good intentions are nice, but when it comes to social programs, wouldn't it be even nicer to know what actually works?
0: People just assume that if you do something that sounds good, that it's going (laughs) to have positive effects, but it's actually more complicated than that.
2: When helping hurts. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Listen in Thursday morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio.
0: Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There you can review the submission guidelines. Next time on Ask Me Another, our Women in Comedy Month continues as we revisit our show with comedian Michelle Wolf, who dishes out some critiques on the media.
2: They're selling their books, their TV, their newspapers. He is selling it all for them, and they are all getting so rich. Why, we suffer immensely.
0: So join me, Ophira Eisenberg, on NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia.
1: Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2013.
1: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about Ogden. Ogden's history, Ogden's reputation, specifically 25th Street. The book is 25th Street Confidential Drama, Decadence, and Dissipation along Ogden's Rowdiest Road. If you uh, grew up in the Ogden area, you can't help but have heard stories of 25th Street. And. Uh, this has tainted, you could say, or enhanced Ogden's reputation for the rest of Utah and, in fact, around the world. And there's some larger-than-life figures we'll get to talking about. Mayor Harmon Ward-Perry, Bell London, Rosetta ducini Davy, and others, and some more of this history. Val Hawley is the author. The book is out from University of Utah Press. On our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, this is what Dallin Phillips writes. I can remember my dad telling me when I was little that it was the most dangerous street in the world. I'm going to be sure to listen, so thanks for listening, Dallin. Val, Holly, the most dangerous street in the world. I, I guess uh, parents, a lot of parents did uh, um, warn their kids not to go to 25th Street.
2: It's true. Even throughout the state, uh, in cities like Logan and Salt Lake, parents were telling their kids that decent people just simply didn't go there.
1: So even as far away as Logan or other areas.
2: That's true. That's yeah. true. It was known all around the state.
1: Uh, let me ask you. So that we have legends of corruption, menace, depravity. Um, I, I imagine to some extent those are true. What? Tell tell me how how corrupt, how depraved.
2: Well, during Prohibition, you can imagine that uh, officially liquor was outlawed along the street, and yet ironically, it was easier to get a drink in Ogden during Prohibition than at any other time in its history. And you don't need to take my word for that. Uh, There was an Ogden man named Ray Olson who became manager of the Utah League for Prohibition repeal. That was in 1933. He said there are more saloons today in Ogden than there were in 1917. The sale and distribution of liquor in Ogden is freer today than at any time during the city's history. It was quite interesting to look into this. Uh, you know, there were there had been rumors all the, all along that during Prohibition the police looked away. They accepted money <clears throat> not to arrest uh, keepers of not I shouldn't say saloons. They called them soft drink parlors. Not to arrest soft drink parlor proprietors for selling liquor. Not just uh, local police, but the federal agents as well. So it was interesting, finally, to find some confirmation of this. There was a, a lady in Ogden during that during prohibition named Clara Molman, who was the wife of an Ogden City Police Officer, and she uh, her diary was recently discovered in a thrift shop. Now uh, Deputy Molman was often the star witness in prosecutions of uh, people accused of illegally selling or manufacturing liquor. He would, uh, he would conduct a lot of the raids. But in Mrs. Molman's diary, we learn that, uh, that he was often getting calls from bootleggers. And as she put it, uh, they'd call every payday to request a quiet little talk in the parlor with closed doors and drawn, blind, uh, drawn blinds, ooh-la-la, piling up. And she'd say he'd come back from these uh, these meetings uh, he would roll in at three am tied up proper so uh, <clears throat> it was quite interesting to find this uh, primary source on uh, on a deputy sheriff who accepted bribery money to look the other way he was also uh, he was also the largest man in the Weber County sheriff's department and when the bulk of confiscated whiskey stills became so great that it was unmanageable, they handed him a sledgehammer and told him to, uh, to smash them to pieces, which he did. So that was his public reputation, but from the recently discovered diary, we learn that uh, he wasn't quite so, quite so upright.
1: Interesting. This is how history comes to light a lot of times, uh, to, find, to find a journal in a thrift mm-hmm. shop.
2: Now, that was the fate of whiskey stills, but what was the fate of confiscated whiskey? Uh, Bernard DeVoto, who is Utah's uh, and Ogden's most famous uh, native writer, who was the first Pulitzer Prize winner from Ogden, wrote a memoir of Ogden during the Prohibition years that was never published until last year, also by the University of Utah Press. Uh, DeVoto revealed that the police would regularly deliver large quantities of confiscated whiskey to the local American Legion post. And in fact, he said that the officers of the American Legion post, of which he was one, put in place, uh, strategically put in place, members of the police force in the organization of the American Legion. So they had an inside track to the police. And every time there was uh, some liquor confiscated, it generally showed up at the American Legion.
1: (laughs) At the American Legion?
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) And that's from Bernard DeVoto. I'm trying to wrap my mind around that. Um, Yeah, famous, famous writer. I'd forgotten he was from Ogden. Uh, Here's a comment from uh, Shalane in uh, Logan. Uh, she wrote to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You can as well. Val Holly is with us for the hour, and his book is 25th Street Confidential, Drama, Decadence, and Dissipation Along Ogden's Rowdiest Road. Uh, here's Shalane's uh, comment. She says, I love 25th Street. I go there almost on a weekly basis. And I enjoy shopping in restaurants. A couple of months ago, I went to a restaurant that Al Capone used to frequent, There's a room in the back where he hung out and played cards with his buddies. I heard that Al Capone considered Ogden's 25th Street too rough. Has your guest heard any stories about Al Capone's visits to 25th Street?
2: You know, they abound in Ogden, but I haven't been able to find a shred of evidence that it actually happened. I rather think that that goes uh, along the lines of what you were saying at the very beginning of the program about the uh, mythology being self-perpetuating. Mm.
1: So that, that'll be disappointing for people to, <laughs> to hear. You haven't been able to find any evidence on that.
2: That's correct. I'm, I'm afraid I haven't. The funny thing is, is that uh, in claiming that Ogden has to get in line with many other cities in the United States, uh, Aguilar, Colorado, Johnson City, Tennessee, they all claim to have had Al Capone hiding out there in Prohibition. <laughs>
1: I guess what it goes to is the, the, the dangerous reputation of the street. If, if quote-unquote, Al Capone finds it too dangerous, then uh, then it must be dangerous. Exactly. Um, it, we'd love to get your comments, so uh, keep them coming. Upraccess at gmail.com, Upraxis at gmail.com on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Find our post. We have a, a picture of 25th Street there, and you can uh, comment, as Dallin Phillips did. I'd love to get your experiences on 25th Street. Uh, The other part of uh, Shalane's comment uh, takes us to today, that 25th Street has been revitalized, um, and uh, Ogden has done a a good job there.
2: Yes, uh, that happened, uh, that that began in the 1970s, when a young architect with the Utah Historical Society named Alan Roberts uh, was driving to Ogden to help create another historical district. He said that he was driving on Washington Boulevard And uh, somehow 25th Street caught his eye. He'd never been on it before. He made a left turn on it, and by the time he drove the three blocks from Washington Boulevard to Wall Avenue, where Union Station is, he had counted over 40 intact Victorian-era commercial buildings. And he was simply amazed. He uh, contacted the mayor and city council, asked to be put on their agenda, and said, you need to preserve this. And the photos, uh, many of which are reproduced in the book, 25th Street Confidential, show a degree of dilapidation that is just horrifying. The the buildings, uh, it's a a miracle that any of them survived. I imagine that they did by hiding in plain sight because 25th Street was not desirable and no one got the idea that they wanted to come in and bulldoze them and replace them. But uh, city, state, and federal money was made available. And one by one, people, community-minded people, started restoring them uh, and make, made it into quite a uh, quite a fancy boutique area now. The, uh, the memory, the afterglow of all the decadence of years past is still there. And so people find it rather intriguing to come down, but they can find fine dining, live theater, uh, <clears throat> mixed-use apartment dwelling, antique shops, and, of course, the uh, Union Station there is at the end of the street at Wall Avenue, and that now is the Utah State Railroad Museum.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a quite a place. Uh, and, and you talk about that afterglow. That, uh, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? It's, it's... Oh,
2: yes, yes. Now, uh, Ogden un- unabashedly promotes uh, the afterglow of 25th Street's decadence in outreached tourists. During the Winter Olympics, they uh, had a budget to put a lot of plaques and kiosks along 25th Street, describing the past, uh, the, the businesses and the activities of the past, you know, from, all, from, from the legitimate storefronts all the way to the uh, houses of ill-fame and gambling dens.
1: Let's bring in uh, Joshua, uh, who is, who's calling us. Uh, he's from Ogden, but now living in St. George. Did I get that right, Joshua? Yes, sir. Uh, well, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Well, I just have a funny little story that my dad tells. His uh, his uncle was a delivery man for the model laundry, and when he would go on vacation when my dad was a boy, 16 or 17 years old, he'd get to do his uncle's uh, delivery route. So he tells this story about delivering sheets to brothels on 25th Street. And he said that he went into the the brothel, and and the the madam invited him in, and he sat down to have a cup of tea and talk with the ladies, and while he was there, um, an officer, a police officer, came in to check on things, and the police officer happened to be the older brother of one of my father's friends, and so before my dad got home, the officer had called his mother, who had called my grandmother, and my dad never got to deliver laundry again. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks Thanks for sharing that, Joshua.
2: You know, I've heard many stories like that in talking to uh, men who are older now. In those days, much of the business in Ogden uh, involved delivering products to brothels along 25th Street. More often, uh, I I would hear stories of delivering soda pop there. But in all cases, the young men who were really only teenagers would uh, would. Work very hard to carry heavy cases of soda pop up the stairs to these establishments, and the ladies loved them. Uh, <clears throat> it seemed to be platonic and all above board, but they, they would take some of these young men under their wing and and, and, and <laughs> pamper and compliment them while they were there, and, and tip them.
1: Interesting. Uh, we have this comment from uh, Sarah Elliott uh, Langston on our Facebook page. You can, you can post there as well, Utah Public Radio Facebook. Look for the, uh, the black and white photo of 25th Street uh, she says, "My favorite story about uh, 25th Street has to be Rose Davy driving around in her pink Cadillac with her ocelot."
2: Oh yes, Rose Davy was the most famous madam of 25th Street during the 20th century. She operated the Rose rooms, which were at the corner of 25th and Lincoln, from 1948 to 50. She was a very beautiful woman. She had a natural instinct for publicity. She had a flair. She was a celebrity on the street, in the courts, oh, in the courts especially, and in the press. And uh, part of her mystique also involves her husband, Bill Davy, who was a burglar and gambler and uh, had his own businesses along the street. He had uh, what I think of as a miniature casino, the Key Club, 200 and a half 25th Street, across from the Rose Rooms, he had uh, a number of uh, state-chartered clubs that dispensed illegal liquor. So between the two of them, maybe you could even call them 25th Street's power couple of the mid-20th century.
1: And, and you said uh, famous on the street, in the courts, and in the press. She was I guess she appeared in, in the courts maybe because of her activities?
2: Oh yes, she was arrested uh, rather often, whether for uh, raids on the Rose Room or for dispense, for selling narcotics. And uh, that was something that uh, was also going on in the street in those times. She had a local physician in Ogden who supplied her with those to sell. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> the Rose Rooms at Twenty Fifth and Washington, Twenty uh, Fifth and Lincoln. Operated from 1948 to 1950, and when that was finally closed down, there was never, as far as I could tell, another business in that on the second floor of that building, until the current uh, rooftop bar called Alleged, which was opened in the last year uh, and has become one of the has probably become the hot spot on 25th Street. <clears throat> it's, so uh, if for, for those who are familiar with alleged, if you go there, that is now that in the space where the Rose Rooms were. The Rose Rooms first blazed into public consciousness in 1948, and I like this story because it involves my dad, who was a member of a barbershop quartet from Weber State. Uh, <clears throat> the Weber Wildlife Federation had an annual jollification party. They held it at the, the Livestock Coliseum in Ogden. And they were accustomed always to having the grand finale as strippers. And so in 1948, uh, here was this program, and Weber College had sent over its musical talent to entertain, but the stag-minded audience wanted nothing to do with it. So here were all these musicians from Weber State trying to perform, and the audience was hurling bottles on the stage, saying, bring on the girls. Well, the strippers this year had been furnished from the Rose Rooms, and beforehand, before the show, they had been circulating and passing out matchbooks, which had the Rose Rooms emblems, and uh, the strippers had written their names in ink in the matchbooks. So the police hurried to the uh, Livestock Coliseum and arrested not the bottle throwers, but the strippers, and this was the first time that the rose rooms had ever been in public consciousness, and immediately their rooming house license was revoked by the city commission. that didn't stop them from continuing to operate for another two years. now why would they uh, why would law enforcement allow them to continue to operate, knowing full well that they were there? Well, uh, Rosetta Davy and her husband were both valuable police informants; they knew the criminal community in Ogden very well, and they willingly passed on a lot of valuable information to the sheriff's department and the police department. Hmm. That's probably how they were able to survive for two years before they were shut down for good.
1: Oh, fascinating. Uh, we're going to take another brief break. When we come back more with Val Holly's fascinating uh, history of 25th Street in Ogden, which also becomes... Uh, uh, I guess uh, colors Ogden's reputation with the rest of Utah and the world. Legends of corruption, menace, and depravity. The rest of Utah has tended to judge Ogden by 25th Street. Uh, and in present day, Ogden has embraced the afterglow of 25th Street's decadence, successfully successfully promotes it to tourists, and of course it's a fascinating place at this point. When we come back, we'll have Val tell us about Mayor Harmon Ward-Perry, Belle London, the most successful madam in Utah history, and uh, other... Uh, aspects of this history. We have a uh, question from Steve in Arizona. We'll get to that following the break. More following the break.
2: This week on Undisciplined, we're talking about life hacks, including some that work like do-it-yourself glucose balancing devices used by increasing numbers of individuals with diabetes and some that don't. Like the common practice of using weekends for recovery sleep. What do these hacks have in common? We'll find out when we're joined by an integrated physiologist and a socio techno endocrinologist. That's Undisciplined Friday at 2.
0: This is Craig Jessup, Dean of the King College of the Arts at Utah State University. UPR is everywhere you are with classical music programming, news and information statewide through their 36 signals. Worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new online app. UPR is only a push of the button away. When you think of Milwaukee, what's the first thing that comes to mind?
1: Do you just drink beer all day? Just be honest, no one's listening, so just, what do you do? Do you drink beer all day? Yes. 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 <laughs> There's a certain amount of quality control checks you must do. It.
0: <laughs> Live from Milwaukee, beer and all other things watery. Next time, onto the best of our knowledge from PRX.
1: Sunday morning at nine on Utah Public Radio.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2013.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams. Generations of Ogdenites have grown up absorbing 25th Street's legends of corruption, menace, and depravity. And the rest of Utah has tended to judge Ogden, known in its first century as a gambling hell and tenderloin, and in recent years as a degraded skid row by the street's gaudy reputation. And though uh, the uh, street has uh, undergone a renaissance, and present-day Ogden embraces the afterglow of that uh, decadent reputation, Um, It has uh, colored uh, Ogden's reputation, and it uh, plays a role in larger themes in Utah and U.S. history, most significantly Mormon-Gentile conflict. It was also targeted in statewide progressive era reform efforts, and had come to epitomize the futility of liquor abatement programs. We're going to learn about a couple of other fascinating figures from this history, Mayor Harmon ward Peary and DeBelle London, the most successful madam, in uh, Utah history. Val Hawley is with us. He's a native of Weber County, attended Weber State College, received a degree in journalism from BYU, a law degree from University of Utah, master's in uh, library science from Catholic University of America, and uh, for uh, some time he's been a law librarian and independent historian in Washington, D.C. He's the author of James Dean, the biography, and Mike Connolly and the Manly Art of Hollywood Gossip, in addition to this book, 25th Street Confidential. Let's start to this last segment of the program, by the way, we have another uh, about 10 minutes left in the program. This is what Steve, uh, his question via email. Do trains no longer come through Ogden? If not, how long has it been since the last train came through town? And to where has the railroad line been rerouted and why?
2: The railroad now bypasses Ogden, it uh, it goes through uh, Salt Lake instead. Railroad passenger service started to decline greatly in uh, the 60s. And uh, I think, I'm a little fuzzy on this, I think the last passenger train came through in the, uh, in the early 80s when Amtrak replaced the service. <clears throat> Even that doesn't come through now. Uh, the trains bypass Ogden and uh, have the servicing done in Salt Lake.
1: When did uh, this, I guess, the the height of this era, you call it decadence, um, start to taper off?
2: I would say in the 50s. Uh, at that time, as I said, the uh, railroad passenger service started to taper off at that time, and also... Uh, well so the the trains were not disgorging as many people onto the street also uh the uh sheriffs department of weber county in the 50s <clears throat> raided a lot of the businesses and closed them down for good
1: um we have uh we have this uh, brief comment on our facebook page from larry jensen referring to the photo looking down 25th street i assume he says that's a classic photo uh, Val valhalla maybe talk about that a little bit
2: that photo on the page seems to be seems to have been taken from the uh, it was taken from Union Station looking east seems to have been taken in the 20s and at that time all of the uh best buildings <clears throat> from the commer- uh, in the commercial style from that era were still standing and intact you had a lot of three-story hotels you had at the uh, end of the street where the where it intersects Washington Boulevard the Grand Broom Hotel and uh, the Reed Hotel kitty corner from that and uh, you also had the wonderful old Model Ts parked diagonally on both sides of the street you had streetcar lines so all of what you see in the photo illustrates the enormous amount of business that was transacted there every day.
1: Yeah, that is a, a classic photo. By the way, how, how much of how many of the original buildings are there? If, if I were to go to 25th Street today and take your book along with me, how how many of these places would I be able to to, to look at?
2: As I recall, there are about 41 or 42 still there, and these were all carefully documented in a, a report put together by Alan Roberts who I mentioned in the last segment, who was with the Utah Historical Society, a very talented architect. These were included on the form which nominated the street for the National Register of Historic Places. That's now called the Lower uh, 25th Street Historic District. Mm.
1: You uh, begin your uh, chapter on the Renaissance with an interesting quote. Um, Uh, I'll just quote this. One of the most cynical cliches in architecture is that poverty is good for preservation. The poor don't bulldoze uh, historic neighborhoods to make way for fancy new uh, high-rises.
2: That's correct, and that's why, that's principally why these buildings have survived, because uh, when the street was so dilapidated, it was not desirable, and no one wanted to go in there and tear the buildings down and put up new ones, because at that time, certainly no one would have come.
1: The uh, the reputation that I remember, um, you know, coming to, never lived in Ogden, but coming to Cache Valley, was of 25th Street as a degraded skid row, because there was a period where it had that reputation. What, uh, how bad did it get?
2: It got pretty bad. Uh, there were two liquor stores on the street in the '60s. There was the Salvation Army, and uh, just a lot of drifters, uh, alcohol addicted. Unfortunate people found their way there and uh, could either squat in abandoned buildings uh, or, uh, or, or, or have an existence in flophouses, hmm. which were <clears throat> inside the dilapidated hotels all along the street. Also, there were uh, there, there there was there were a number of restaurants that uh, were very kind to these people and would uh, feed them for free. And cash what few checks they had, hmm. so it seems like it was a naturally occurring place for these people to uh, to live.
1: Before we uh, conclude, we have about uh, seven minutes left. Uh, I want to have you tell me about uh, two of the, the very fascinating, there are many fascinating characters, but uh, uh, in your book, Belle London, the most successful madam in Utah history. Tell me a bit about her.
2: Yes, Belle London was there from 1889 to 1914, and she was a very smart woman. She was an excellent businesswoman. She had any number of uh, brothels. On twenty fifth street. The most famous one was her grand parlor house in Electric Alley, which was an alleyway uh, between twenty fifth and twenty fourth streets. I call her the most successful madam in Utah history because when Salt Lake in nineteen oh eight decided to have to, to create a, a regulated prostitution district in Salt Lake, which is now about where Central Station of the Front Runner is. They recruited not any of the famous madams of Salt Lake, but they got Belle London to come down from Ogden to uh, create and organize and manage it. <laughs> Interesting. She uh, she had the repu uh, it, she had the reputation of running politics in Ogden, and she probably did because she because of her wealth and of all the uh, incriminating information that she possessed. There was a time in the Utah State Legislature down in the state capitol in about 1912, where there was actually a debate on the House floor as to whether Bell London ran politics in Ogden.
1: <laughs> a debate on the House floor?
2: Yes, Yeah. that's in the book.
1: Yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, Harmon Ward-Perry. He was a mayor for a time.
2: Harmon Ward-Perry was a, a mayor off and on between 1934 and uh, 1949. When I was growing up, there were all sorts of stories about this Mayor Peary. And once again, we're going back to the, uh, what was said at the beginning of the program about the historical viewpoint languishing while the mythology is self-perpetuating. Everyone was convinced that Harmon Harm Peary uh, became rich by uh, pocketing money, uh, fees and fines from all the gambling establishments and the slot machine purveyors that were in town. But the truth turned out to be that uh, Harmon Peary was, uh, he had his own money. He Even his political enemies more than once went on the record to say that he never profited, per- profited personally from uh, fees and fines from gambling establishments. What he did was keep taxes low, which is why especially the, uh, the, the large railroad employee community in Ogden kept electing him as mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... His opponents, and there were a lot of those, including the editor of the Standard Examiner, uh, were, were just always thinking that uh, <clears throat> Harmon Peary was responsible for 25th Street's bad reputation, and, and that was what everyone else judged Ogden by. Uh, Harmon Peary's slogan was money going into the city treasury, which belongs there, but the Standard Examiner retorted that that means that Peary, who was, uh, in, he was a wealthy tavern keeper, can pile up more gains when he as mayor authorizes himself to load his tavern with slot machines. The standard examiner was afraid that as long as Harmon Peary was mayor, 25th Street would continue to be the trademark by which the entire city was judged.
1: Hmm. I imagine there would have been periodic efforts—you made a little bit of reference to this earlier—to clean up the street.
2: Yes, there were. In 1913, uh, people were horrified by how it looked. It wasn't necessarily that uh, that it was a, uh, well, at, at that time, it was a bustling business. <clears throat> but uh, there were worm-eaten trolley electric poles uh, in the middle of the street, and some of the buildings had never been painted. And so there was a Campaign right before World War One to clean it up and spruce it up and even change its name so it would no longer be, 20, be called 25th Street. Ironically, in the '70s, when the mayor and city council started to uh, create programs to restore 25th Street, they said they want to restore it. They said they wanted to restore it to its pre-World War I appearance, quite unaware that at the same period, people were quite unhappy with how it looked. There was also an effort in the 1930s to change the name of 25th Street. They felt that it had become so, the the reputation had become so bad that if they changed its name, and some of the candidates uh, for the new name were Roosevelt Way or American Way. uh, So you had petitions going up one side of the street asking people to sign to change the name and petitions on the other side of the street where people were being asked to sign to keep the name and uh, eventually the name 25th Street won out.
1: And uh, I imagine city fathers are very happy about that today. Let's see. Oh, they are. Ha- has they a, are. A, has a brand, I, yeah. I I
2: think uh, 25th Street is now a tourist attraction and people want to come and see if it was that bad how it got that way.
1: Just have a couple minutes left. I wonder having, you know, dived into the story what what you come away with your you know your your biggest impression here or or biggest surprise perhaps?
2: Oh, the biggest surprise is how well documented all this is uh, in the archives at Weber State University, and at the Marriott Library at, at the University of Utah. There is tons of material about this, whether correspondence or files uh, detailing, for example, how much property Bell London owned on the street uh it, it's very well documented so <clears throat> there's no need to rely on the mythology uh you can you can go and find out the facts for yourself
1: mm-hmm. i wonder do you run into anybody from you know utah ogden out there in, in dc do you, do you run into these any of these stories uh there
2: oh it's been so long ago now since the street was really uh notorious that uh no i'm afraid i haven't personally run into uh anyone in Washington who who talks about it you But not so long ago uh, as you mentioned earlier when Tom Owens an Ogdenite was in the army in the 60s at that time a lot of the old soldiers who were still in the army remembered very well 25th Street and its its racy uh, activities during World War II
1: mm. Well it's a fascinating book and uh, listeners can uh, can find out much more about the history it's called Twenty Fifth Street Confidential, Drama, Decadence, and Dissipation Along Ogden's Rowdiest Road, uh, out from University of Utah Press. Val Hawley is the author. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: My pleasure. I'm very glad to be here.
0: Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lale Gilbert. I've heard a lot of conversations lately about clean eating. The idea behind this movement, or FAD depending on your take, is that eating lots of real foods, veggies, fruit, whole grains, and plant-based protein is the best way to eat. It also implies that you should eat as close to nature as possible, minimally processed, not packaged, or originating from a factory. It's really not in me to criticize other people's way of eating, but this is a trend that's been bugging me more and more lately. The phrase began with good intentions. Most of us really should eat more veggies and be more aware of where our food comes from. But clean eating has taken on a new elitist form. The implication is that if you're not eating clean, what you put in your mouth is dirty, lazy, unhygienic, or immoral, and it's simply not true. It's more from a sense of awareness about food into a diet-driven, shame-built system. Not only does the phrase encourage a hierarchical model for eating, it's out of reach for all but a privileged few on a global scale. And there's more and more evidence that such a restrictive eating diet can open the door to eating disorders. It isn't going back to our natural state. Our natural state 150 years ago was stuffing ourselves with lard to stave off the winter chill. Or 300 years ago, it would have been eating in season and trying to avoid plague water. Is that a more natural state than how we eat today? What is the optimal diet for humans? It turns out someone has studied this. According to scientific research, there is likely no single natural diet that is best for human health. A study published in the Journal of Obesity Review looked at diets, habits, and physical activity levels of hundreds of modern hunter-gatherer groups. Researchers found that they all exhibited generally excellent metabolic health while consuming a wide range of diets. Some of these folks got 80% of their calories from vegetable carbohydrates. Others ate mostly meat. All of them consumed a mix of meat, fish, and plants, eating foods that were high in nutrients and fiber but it was also not uncommon for them to eat sugar, primarily in the form of honey. Researchers concluded that there is no one true diet, that humans can be very healthy eating a wide range of foods. But don't reach for the Diet Dr. Pepper just yet. There are some things we can glean from the clean eating principles, even if the craze has gotten a bit evil. First, use social media as a resource, not a guidebook. This may seem obvious, but it can be tough in our media-saturated world. Just because one eating style works for one person doesn't mean it's universally applicable. Healthy is subjective, it's also highly personal. Emotional, mental, and physical well-being all play a part in your health. But if you're sacrificing one of those to prioritize another, you aren't supporting the whole person. Next. Eat more plants, but this doesn't mean eat veggies only or all the time. It means make more of your meals veggie-based, and the other parts of the balanced diet will fall into place. Remember also that your meals don't have to be photogenic. There are plenty of delicious, nutrient-dense foods that don't look very pretty. I ate a salad for lunch today that actually looked kind of sad but tasted delicious and gave my body the nutrients and fiber it needed to get through the day. Third, think honest over clean. A red vine may not be ideologically aligned with clean eating, but it accurately represents itself as an indulgence. It's what it claims to be. Is your candy bar pretending to be an energy bar? Or your bowl of sugar pretending to be breakfast? Put it back and go for the real thing. And finally, stop treating all packaged food as the enemy. Fresh food is wonderful for obvious reasons, but often we forget about foods that are just as nutritious in their preserved state. Canned or frozen veggies, fruit and lower sodium beans, lentils, chickpeas, and peas all retain their peak nutritional quality and cost a lot less. The bottom line is, let's agree to leave the clean to the dishwasher and feed ourselves what we need without judgment, shame, or Instagram. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter.
1: A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSU-FM, Logan.
0: Utah Public Radio would like to thank Community Nursing Services for becoming one of our newest sponsors. For more information on how you can become a sponsor, email debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to download our UPR app so you can listen anywhere.